0: Hello, I'm Emily Burl.
1: And I'm Siva Vadianathan.
0: And from the University of Virginia's Karsh Institute, this
1: is Democracy in Danger. We're turning our eyes to Poland today were a national election just a place. election It was the ruling law and justice Yes, this
0: has been a closely watched story, Siva. But it was the opposition liberal coalition that
1: appears headed for a majority in parliament.
0: For the past eight years, years Poland's parliament has been controlled by the right-wing Nationalist Law and Justice Party, known by the Polish acronym PIS or Peace, and led by a polarizing figure, morning, Kaczynski. Kaczynski, Kaczynski the blamed the country's low birth rate on women drinking too much alcohol. For these demonstrators, the comment was the final straw. Under PIS, the government tightened controls on the media, stoked fears about immigration from Muslim countries, and supported tighter restrictions on abortion, which has been illegal in Poland
1: since 1993. Yeah, and it's also been involved in a whole lot of shenanigans that echo the authoritarian creep that we have seen in other democracies around the world. We've seen it in Brazil. We've seen it in India. And of course, we saw it in nearby Hungary. And yet, on October 15th, polls went to the polls in great numbers and they ousted the PIS, the turnout was astounding, 73%. That's the largest turnout since elections returned to Poland in 1989. And to be clear, law and justice still got a plurality of the vote. They got about 37%, but that won't be enough for PIS to retain its grip on power. That's because two centrist and one left-of-center party say they will work together to form a coalition government.
2: This period of taking Poland uh, to the margins of Europe, of uh, breaking uh, rule of law, rules of democracy, uh, this is ending. Within the next few weeks, the current opposition will be forming the government.
1: Leading that alliance is the Civic Coalition Party, which won just over 30% of the vote.
0: Well, we've invited an expert to break down these results and give us a sense of the political atmosphere in Poland. On the line from Warsaw with us is Agnieszka Graf. She is a literature professor at the University of Warsaw. Her research looks at nationalism, feminist history, and gender. Agnieszka has written several books, including, most recently, Anti-Gender Politics in the Populist Moment. Agnieszka, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm glad to be with you. Agnieszka, let's start with the election results. When we contacted you to schedule this interview back before the vote had even taken place, you told our producers that if law and justice came out on top, it would be the end of democracy in Poland. Now, that might sound melodramatic to our listeners. Um, So why was this true in your view? And what do the days ahead look like now that the election has taken place?
2: The big surprise of these elections is that uh, Konfederacja, which is the fascist party in Poland, they were expected to be over 10 percent and they ended up under six so even they admitted that it's a complete uh, flop. And it really gives us hope regarding not just the, you know, the future of politics, but also the state of society. But I think uh, there there is a lot of truth, um, people's words who say, don't be too optimistic too fast. Let's wait till they give up power. The, the end of democracy, to my mind, really already happened. Democracy has been taken away bit by bit through various reforms of the judiciary, which basically made uh, Polish courts... Obedient to to the government uh, through tightening relationships with the Catholic Church, which in Poland is far more restrictive on a number of issues than than in other countries. So basically the the, the church was telling the government what to do on issues like reproductive rights and gay rights. Um, Also through taking over what used to be public media. And Poland has huge areas where there is no other television available uh, to, to especially people in the countryside than um, public TV. And that has become a, basically a propaganda machine. A number of institutions of culture that's, you know, that's close to my heart. Uh, so museums, theaters, uh, literary awards, um, all that has been basically colonized by, by party apparatchiks. And I'm using that word from the previous era because the similarity is striking they basically have been using Poland like their own, uh, you know, private garden. And there isn't that much left. And we'll see how um, this new coalition will do um, taking Poland back from them. Because they, they, they've they made a number of um, arrangements to make this extremely difficult.
1: Yeah. So, Agnieszka, the leader of the Civic Coalition Party is a man named Donald Tusk. And he's been prime minister before, Uh, And I understand he celebrated the opposition win on election night by saying it was the end of this bad time. But how much power will his party have in this alliance and how much opportunity will they have to reverse the policies of the last few years?
2: Well, bad time is a, is an understatement. Uh, you know, in my circle, people are using much stronger words. The term evil, quite simply, Poland is polarized to the point where families, members of families, are not speaking to each other. Mm, friendships are breaking, and th- there is a very strong sense than the, that the people on the other side are evil. And I think that's shared by both. So it's a lot like the United States today. Mm. The, and that kind of polarization, I think, was really um is really what Tusk will have to deal with. But I am actually I'm actually pretty sure that they can deal with that because peace, besides being authoritarian, is also very inept. They don't have that many experts. They 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 have a lot of people who were conformists rather than authoritarians. And so when power is lost, money is is not within reach. They will just drop out. That's what I'm hoping. What will be very difficult to overcome is this very deep division in Poland and also the desire on part of the electorate for revenge. Uh, rather than some new order being set up. So th- that's what I'm worried about. I'm, I'm worried about street violence, about this general atmosphere of hatred, because the 37% that peace won, these people will be in parliament. So they will be blocking a lot of the reforms and they will be fanning the hatred, but, but they won't have public television. Mm. And I think that's really a game changer. I think um, my, my bet is that public television is, will be the first reform that Tusk will undertake. And he's a tough guy. I'm not his voter, but I appreciate his decisiveness. And he's a guy who knows how to get things done. And he managed to get almost a million people out in the street twice in the last three months, which I think was decisive in mobilizing the electorate. Hmm.
0: Agnieszka, on that note, I'm wondering if you can help connect the political mood in Poland with your research, particularly on gender and what you call anti-gender politics. So Poland was a communist country in the Soviet orbit for much of the 20th century, but it also has a deep conservative Roman Catholic history. You tell the story in your book about an event in 2013 that you attended with your friend and co-author and you thought it might feature progressive catholic views but it turned scary pretty fast could you tell us a little bit about what what happened
2: Yes. Well, what happened was that we witnessed uh, personally the, the the beginnings of the so-called war against gender in Poland. And I think everybody now knows what that is. In different versions, it's happening in the United States as anti-trans campaigns. In France, millions of people were out in the streets protesting against um, gay marriage. There, it, there are different versions of these ultra conservative campaigns. What they have in common is that they Take the word gender, and they re-signify it. They change its meaning to mean evil things, to mean a threat to the family, to mean, um, you know, forceful change of children's um, sex, and so on. So these. Moral panics that we've seen develop since then were just beginning at the time. And what happened was that we were invited by a progressive church, a Dominican church, to discuss this strange concept of gender. And before the discussion could start, someone uh, threw a smoke bomb at the speakers and waved a banner that said, Gender equals 666. And at, at the time, I was quite astonished. I thought this was, first of all, I had no idea this was a global phenomenon that took us some time to discover. And secondly, I did. I really didn't know what they meant and well now we do right there there is this association between women's rights as well as lgbtq rights and a kind of demonic force that's supposed to destroy western civilization and and this is a pretty widespread movement with origins in the united states it didn't start in poland the world congress of families which is one of the hubs of the anti gender movement is an organization that was set up by a few american ultra conservative sociologists along with some russian ones so there's this interesting collaboration there are also big groups that started in in Spain and Brazil, and then there's tradition family property, also a Brazilian one in origin. But what happened in the last decade is that these groups, they're extremely well-funded in part by uh, American NGOs like the Heritage Foundation, but also through various shady channels from Russia and also from uh, ordinary citizens. They they do have a huge following uh, worldwide. Uh, They're great at using the internet and they, they spark off these moral panics in different countries, especially countries where political change is happening. So these campaigns tend to coincide with electoral campaigns. The idea is basically, if you want power in these countries, you you want to associate your opponents with gender. There there are two aspects. One is that um, Kaczyński went hand-in-hand with ultra-conservative groups in Poland, Ordo Iuris being the most famous, um, in sparking these moral panics, especially around LGBTQ rights. And so we had this outburst, I think this was in world media a lot, of uh, local governments in the southeast establishing themselves as LGBTQ-free zones. So it, you know, from 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 where I'm standing, it really seemed like you know a wave of fascism coming into Poland. Mm. And the other thing that was happening was uh, was tightening the already extremely severe abortion law in 2020 through the Polish equivalent of the Supreme Court, the so-called Constitutional Tribunal, which they had taken over in the meantime, banning abortion. Even even in cases of fetal damage. And since then, we've had not only waves of protests, but we've also had deaths. Women have been dying in hospitals.
1: Well, One of the things we've seen with proto-fascist politics around the world, including in the United States, is this connection between sort of forced reproduction and resistance to new people coming into a country and changing the profile of the children in a society right so is there a ideological link in Poland between resistance to immigration and this desire to control women's reproductive lives Of course there is. And there was even
2: evidence in Poland's streets for many weeks of that link. When the crisis on the Belarusian border started, activists, the left feminist activists who were helping um, these people survive in the forests on the border, were making these posters and signs, uh, where are the children from Michałów? And uh, Michałów was a small town where they had last been seen. And it was a campaign trying to evoke um, some kind of empathy on the Polish populace. well, in response to that, one of those ultra conservative organizations did a huge poster campaign all around Poland, billboards, with very blonde, blue eyed children, and the sign saying, And where are those children? implying, Why aren't we having more blue eyed children? Mm. And then that was accompanied by statistics of the uh, falling birth rates um, since the 1970s. So the implication is that, you know, the, the, the West is imposing on us the influx of, you know, brown people mostly men in the imaginary of the right. They, they don't like to admit that they're actually women and children among the refugees. And uh, at the same time, this is the, the narrative, they are encouraging our women, our Polish women, to have abortions and our uh, children to have sex change and become gay and whatever. So so the connection is very direct.
1: Right, right. So could you discuss a bit about the protests we've seen in the streets against PIS that were leading up to the election. What sort of symbolism was used there? What sort of messages were used? Uh, Very fascinated by the sort of contrasting rhetoric and symbols that we've seen in Poland. I would love to see if there are echoes elsewhere. Well,
2: the the last wave has been pretty tame and mainstream. And I think Tusk actually made an effort to create this hope that uh, we would get beyond polarization. Mm. Uh, but the earlier waves of protests, the 2016, 2017, 2020, especially in the, in the midst of um, the COVID pandemic, were extremely radical and especially women's uh, marches, which were huge, um, had a lot of swear words used, the F word, which has a Polish equivalent that's quite, you know, uh, tasty to pronounce, what was, was shouted a lot in the direction of peace. Um, the symbolism included uh, a thunderbolt, this this lightning bolt that's supposed to signify women's power, women's anger, but also, you know, the, the approaching storm, which will wipe out peace. So there was a kind of revolutionary fervor accompanying a lot of these demonstrations. And I think it has changed a lot of people's minds about the, the the law and justice government. But until recently, there was very little hope of winning elections. And so we I like to think that without those demonstrations, without those mobilizations, we wouldn't have won the elections and that's actually mm-hmm. what separates us from Hungary Hungarians are you know are notoriously depressed that's at least their reputation in the region right? like this the country with the highest suicide rate and the, they have this sense well you know it happened to us there's nothing we can undo and their opposition was was much more passive than ours and in Poland there's uh, you know there, were, there there were constant fights on the opposition there was a huge debate on whether the opposition would be capable of putting together a one list turning Poland into into a, a two-party system. That didn't happen. And I think that's actually best that it didn't happen. But, you know, we ha- I have fights within my family, you know, about who is the traitor and why didn't we have this common list. One of the things we've been doing a lot is complaining that young people are not participating. And, you know, they the, the turnout among the young was bigger statistically than among the the, the aged.
0: That's great. Um, One of the things that you were describing to us, Agnieszka, is this kind of pro-Natalist white nationalism that has taken hold in a lot of contexts. It also reminds me a lot of what we saw in the late 19th century in North America and in parts of Europe and it's um, an anti-democratic force that's difficult to to fight. but one of the things that you've noted in your own research is that public display, creativity, grassroots art and activism has played a really important role in speaking back to these sources of power. We've been talking a lot this season about art and democracy. You've written quite a lot about the role of of feminist art in Poland's pro-democracy movements, particularly the black feminism movement, as it's called in Poland, um, and the reproductive rights campaigns. How has the work of advocates manifested in art galleries, in music, in theater, in public art? And why do you see this as important to Poland's future?
2: Yes, what I observed with fascination is uh, the the birth of a phenomenon that has been described in relation to radical feminism in the United States, even for the 60s, but it hadn't been present in Poland, namely artivism. In other words, very self-conscious interventions in public sphere that are actually parts of demonstrations, you know, street events, but are also artistic events. And they might be theater events, there might be street blockades, there might be people uh, carrying signs that are Created by artists. And the, the image I mentioned earlier, the, the lightning bolt is actually a very beautiful image created by uh, Ola Jasianowska, who is one of the, the great uh, graphic designers. And there were uh, there were huge waves of images spilling through the internet. I actually have one on my wall that says women strike with the sign, uh, which means get the fuck out. And there were all sorts of stars. Jodie Foster was on one and they were all over the streets. They were also on banners. So it's hard to, to draw the line between art and activism in these events. There were also songs that worked that way that would be played from loudspeakers during demonstrations. And there were a number of theater plays that were extremely radical, especially regarding their attacks on, uh, on the Catholic Church. There's one more work of art which has been decisive in the last weeks coming up to elections, and which you can see in, you know, in cinemas and in the States or wherever you're listening to us, and that's The Green Border by Mieszka Holland, which is a movie that uh, has attracted more than a million viewers in Poland now, despite the vicious hate campaign organized by, by public media. And it's, it's an astonishing movie. It's a really beautiful, very well done film that is meant to shake poles to the core about what has been going on on the polish belarusian border. But you know what? I think what has happened since then, since the Black protest movement, this is really five years ago, is that self-made, handmade banners that are sort of ostentatiously not pretty pushed away these... Uh, Beautifully prepared and pre-planned interventions. The the last wave of protests featured cardboard that was ostentatiously sloppy. Pieces of cardboard that worked uh, a lot like memes on internet with really weird signs. Signs like, stop torturing us, I have no more cardboard left at home. And have hazardly made and photographed a lot and circulating uh, through through social media campaigns.
0: So do you see um, is there a generational difference among there feminists is. and where and how does that play out in terms of the aesthetics of of generational activism around um, women's rights and around feminist issues?
2: I think there is a huge uh, uh, gap uh, between the generation that went to the 2016 uh, marches, which were multi-generational. And I would say that my generation was the dominant one. And there was a lot of um, word games, um, beautiful banners, and playing with patriotic symbols. And then in 2020, which was a breakthrough for the younger kids, the the people who were in high school at the time, the, the protests against the Constitutional Tribunal's verdict, And there were almost no older people because we believed rightly or wrongly that it was just very dangerous to go out in the streets at the height of the pandemic. So that cohort was much younger. And that's when there was much more of this bits of cardboard being used and no patriotic imagery whatsoever. And they were participating in the BLM demonstrations also happening in Poland. And they were anti-state. And we thought that it meant individualism. We thought that it meant we're cutting ourselves off. We have been betrayed. But it's. I think we need to rethink that because that generation has shown up for the elections. So what, what, what it seems is that they want a new social contract rather than no social contract.
0: Well, Agnieszka Graf, thank you so much for joining us on
2: Democracy in Danger. Thank you very much.
1: Agnieszka Graf is a professor of literature at the University of Warsaw and an expert on feminist history, gender studies, and nationalism. Her work has appeared in Signs, Eastern European Politics and Societies, and Public Culture, among other journals. She's the author with Elżbieta Korolczuk, of anti-gender politics in the populist moment.
0: Democracy in Danger is part of the Democracy Group podcast network. Visit democracygroup.org to find all of our sister shows. We'll be right back after this message from our friends.
2: What I learned through my journey is that I was not as good as I thought I was, and they were not
1: as evil as I thought they were.
0: Join our nervy bunch of liberals and conservatives on Village Squarecast for civil discussions about politics, religion, and race. The topics your mom taught you never to discuss in polite company. In high conflict, any intuitive, common sense thing you do to try to fix
2: it will probably make it worse.
0: Find us on Village Squarecast wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Emily Agnieszka made a really strong argument that the the status of women the uh, the ability for women to control their reproductive rights is crucial to defending democracy these international these these transnational threats to democracy so often appeal to this like this deep, visceral, cultural fear of women actually being able to have autonomy.
0: That's right. This is something that we have seen time and time again. One of the things that Agnieszka explained to us was the link between uh, international, transnational uh, global forces and their influence on Mm -hmm. pro-Natalist movements on the ground in Poland that are actually really rooted in white nationalism as well. She really was stressed the fact that we cannot turn away from the fact that fascism and the war on women's reproductive rights are linked battles.
1: And look, we we don't only see it in Europe, in Poland. You know, we talked about this in Texas just a couple of weeks ago when we were down in Austin. And, you know, I mean, we see a lot of the same themes playing out in Texas, playing out in Florida playing out in Wisconsin, right? This is this is not just a European thing. And it's as if so many of these forces are reading the same books or or being inspired by the same websites or memes. And and this this great replacement fear. But, you know, there seems to be no limit to the spread. And these anxieties are very linked to xenophobia, and the fear of immigrants coming in and changing the nature of a society. But let's be clear about the bottom line Emily Poland rejected fascism this this episode is actually like a glint of optimism in an in an otherwise scary world story that we've been examining over the past seven seasons.
0: That's right waking up on October 16th to the news that the law and Justice party had lost the Polish government was really, Amazing. You know, a few days ago, we were reading op eds in outlets like the New York Times, making it clear that it was really anybody's guess how this was going to turn out. And so we'll be looking at Poland to see how this coalition government takes hold, how it coalesces mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, around certain issues. And uh, where it seems people have the most hope uh, will be in loosening the executive branch's grip on yeah. the judiciary, yeah. which is a cornerstone oh, of democratic familiar. principle. <laughs> exactly. Uh, and also the um, the executive's control over the media. Mm. That's been a really big issue in Poland. So looking at a free press and looking at a a, a less encumbered judiciary, um, we'll see what things look like for Poland.
1: That's all we have for you on this episode of Democracy in Danger. Next time, we're going to come back to the relationship between feminism and democracy in a show that we are recording live from here in Charlottesville on October 21st.
0: For more on that show and info on how to join us, visit dindanger.org. That's Danger. Dot org. And please follow us on Instagram at DD Podcast for more on what's coming up and some behind the scenes action from
1: our studio. And be sure to subscribe to Democracy in Danger on your favorite podcast app. Leave us a review, leave us some stars. A lot of stars, please. It's the best way to help us reach new listeners.
0: Democracy in Danger is produced by Robert Armengall, Nicholas Scott, and Stephen Betts. Ariana Aronson handles our social media. Adin Yeager engineers the show. Our interns are Charlie Burns, Lena Freyhat, Katie Pyle, Maktoum Mouard Shah, and Caroline Yu.
1: We have help from Ellie Salvatierra. Support comes from the University of Virginia's College of Arts and Sciences. The show is a project of UVA's Karsh Institute of Democracy. We are distributed by the Virginia Audio Collective of WTJU Radio here in Charlottesville. I'm Siva Sivavadiyanathan.
0: And I'm Emily Burl. See you soon. We'll